welcome to William Sitwell's Biting Talk. Yep, this is Britain's liveliest food and drink show with me, William Sitwell, Telegraph restaurant critic and author and purveyor of some of the greatest talent in the food and drink world that we have here in the United Kingdom. On today's show, we meet Mark Hicks, the great British restaurateur and chef who had a terrible start to lockdown when his entire business went into administration. Now Mark Hicks is digging deep, digging deep creatively, digging deep amongst all his friends and contacts to start to rebuild his business. Mark is my first guest on Biting Talk. Then we reach out to a tea sommelier. That's Jane Milton, a rare breed, I would have thought. A tea sommelier, I don't know very many of those. I've come across water sommeliers. Of course, I know wine sommeliers. But what about tea sommeliers? Jane's going to talk to us about how the British love of tea went completely mad during lockdown. Apparently, we drank an extra 112 million cuppers. How about that? We'll catch up with Jane in due course. And we meet the master baker, Richard Bertonet. There's been a sourdough craze going across the nation. But what is the man who really knows about dough? The man who bosses his dough make of this? He's opening his cookery school soon. We'll catch up with Richard Bertonet. And we will end the show as we always do with a dip into the House of Heydari's cocktail shelf with the Biting Talk mixologist, our in-house bartender, Farhad Heydari, who today, I think he's being controversial. Farhad Heydari is giving his own spin on a classic Bloody Mary. My big question is, will there be sherry or horseradish? Not to mention celery. That's all coming up on William Sipple's Biting Talk. But first... We head from where I am, which is in Somerset, actually, all the way over to London, to Cadogan Pier in Chelsea, where we meet in a houseboat, Chef Mark Hicks. Hello, Mark. How are you? Welcome to Biting Talk. In terms of the discussion we first have, where are you located currently? I'm on my boat on Cadogan Pier. So you're in Chelsea? I'm in Chelsea at the moment. You're sipping a glass of something red, which is very good. Yes, yes. What is your good. What is your Tuesday night beverage of choice? I've got a little uh, Beaujolais. Oh, very nice. And you're sipping that from the sort of glass that I like to drink champagne from. I know, it's the first one that comes to hand. <laughs> a bit more robust. <laughs> yes. Yes, you and I have a history of uh, losing glasses, so I'm very excited just, just well, to see. I, I thought I'd bring this one out as a sort of vintage um, nod. Yes, if I was near you, I would do my best to smash it, but unfortunately we're, you're in London, I'm in Somerset. I'm closer to where you grew up, of course, in Bridport. Yes. Um, before we go on to talk about the business and so on, just uh, tell us a bit about your, your childhood. What was it like growing up down on the South Coast? Was it a, was it a foodie family? Uh, not really, you know, my grandmother cooked, sort of cooked good home food. Um, there was a certain routine during the week, you know, I think one day of the week was stuffed lamb's hearts. The other week was sort of bacon rashers. Everything seemed to be slow cooked, <laughs> even the roast beef. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's right, am I wrong in, right or wrong in saying that, funnily enough, it was an attempt to do metal work 
or rather not to do metal work because you thought the girls were doing domestic science that actually led you into catering early on? Yeah, there was, it was um, the fifth year and there was a choice of domestic science or metal work. And uh, I thought it'd be a good idea. Well, three of us thought it'd be a good idea to do domestic science being in a classroom full of girls. And uh, when we turned up on day one, it was just us and the teacher. They all decided to do metal work. But it didn't put you off. <laughs> so way back when, when you studied at Weymouth Catering College, what was what was Catering College like, you know, in your in your late teens? Um, was it an inspiring place to be or were you taught were you being taught those old fashioned pointless things like yeah. turning potatoes and carrots? Yeah, it was proper back then. I think, you know, I've been to lots of catering colleges over the years and you know, they aren't what they used to be. I think these days there's a, something missing in college lecturing, really. Yeah, yeah. And then you went to London. You, you turned up in those places that your very lecturer was working in. Can you remember your, your first job on, on, I think it was Park Lane in the Hilton, yeah. was it? Yeah. My first job, well, the only job I could get really was to staff canteen at the Hilton in Park Lane. And I was... Doing things like, you know, loading frozen peas and things in the steamer and cooking chips from the bag and that sort of stuff. But I sort of lasted it out for six months. It was, for me, it was just a, you know, step in, step in the door in London, really. And all my friends are working at the Dorchester and the Grosvenor House. And after about six months, I eventually got an interview at the Grosvenor House and, you know, began working with some of my friends and met a lot of new friends. Yeah, and then went on and... Um ended up being the head, you know, chef director at Caprice Holdings. And then um, about 12, 13 years ago, you quit and set up your own business, which we'll talk about in due course. The kind of food that you're known for, this particular take on, on British cooking, modern British food, really, and the style, the kind of gutsy style of presentation, um, the way that you cook, the way that you present your food, where does that come from? Was, it, was there a deliberate idea you know, a deliberate idea, for example, at Tram Shed to cook a whole chicken and present it just with chips. Where did you get the idea for the way that you serve salmon, which is your home cured salmon where you cut it through? Was there a person that taught you these little quirky, you know, ways of cooking or was it something that you picked up along the way? I think it's something that some things were back to my childhood memories, you know, my grand sort of sousing the mackerel that I cooked. And then I thought, well, you know, the tram shed thing. And well, in fact, when I opened the Oyster and Shop House, my biggest influence was uh, Chez Lamy Louis in Paris, which is a really difficult restaurant to get into. But very generous uh, portions on the menu, you know. With And I got, I sort of got the whole roast chicken idea from there. And uh, for those of you that have been to Chez Lamy Louis, you know, if you order the foie gras, they keep coming and topping up your... Um, brioche, toasted brioche and stuff. And you sort of, you don't, it's, it's very expensive, but you don't go out of there feeling ripped off because there's that sense of generosity about it. Yes. And it's gone on to very much sort of define the food that you do. Now, let's talk about the present day because, of course, the beginning of lockdown, um, your business was the sort of an, an early casualty, whether it was to do with corona or not, we can we can sort of discuss another day. But let's look at that fact that, um, there was a just a few days before lockdown, your business went into administration. What's happening now? Because I've heard word 
that you're, you, you've got your hand back on your famous restaurant, Lime Regis Hicks Oyster and Fish House. Is this correct? Yes. So I had an opportunity uh, once we went into administration to buy, you know, some or all of the restaurants back. Uh, and what happens, you know, especially in a situation like this is where you actually only off, have to offer for the fixtures and fittings. Uh, so... First of all, I got the Oyster and Chop House back for sort of 15 grand uh, and there was a flood and the administrators wouldn't cough up on the insurance uh, and I sort of totted it up in my head that by the time I'm open, I'm going to be 100 grand in. But the one I really wanted was the one on the coast, uh, the Hicks Oyster and Fish House. So someone had put a biggish offer in, you know, nearly 100 grand on that uh, and I thought, you know, I'm going to sit tight and just see what happens. And my landlord, who I've known since I was sort of seven years old, uh, you know, made it quite difficult for them access and that sort of stuff. And <laughs> I sort of sat tight and they, you know, they eventually pulled out. And I did the same thing, stuck an offer in for 15 grand, which got accepted. So that's quite, it's quite useful being part of the Southwest Mafia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And obviously these days, you know, people aren't really offering any money for you know goodwill or you know freehold and leases and things uh so i was lucky so i sort of got back exactly what i wanted and we're in the process at the moment of doing a little bit of a refurb um having a bit of a clean up you know improving the things that i've always wanted to you know improve so so you'll be independent once again um running the place that you love in the part of the world that you love so so this is fairly fortuitous yeah, exactly. Uh, I think, you know, the, the more and more people I talk to, uh, sort of, you know, they've got their eyes on things in the countryside. You know, London's hard. I, I was at one Lombard Street today and the city was dead. We went across the road to the Ned for a quick beer and we were one of, you know, 10 people in the Ned. And, you know, the Ned's a great big place. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There aren't many people on the streets of London, and I, I don't know how everyone else is doing, but I'd imagine Mayfair restaurants and that are doing okay. Yeah, and um, you've got a food truck now. You're doing the. This is the stuff of movies. The great chef has an empire, loses everything, gets one of his places back, but starts a food truck. You're you're you've become a fishmonger again. Is this right? Exactly, which is quite interesting, you know. So I, I've always sort of supported local fishermen that fish out of Lyme Regis uh, in the restaurant. And this sort of gave me the opportunity to sort of buy from them and then pass that on as wet fish to the locals and tourists and stuff. So that's what I've been doing, as you witnessed uh, last week. And it's, it's quite fun. You know, you, you end up bumping into lots of old schoolmates and poachers and <laughs> different, different people that were friends with your dad, that sort of stuff. Yes. Uh, and, now, and also good PR for the restaurant opening. Yeah. Now, just briefly before we before we have to go, and time's upon us. Um, as a gregarious individual, as a as a chef who these days spends more time this side of the past than in the kitchen with your pals and everyone going around uh, your restaurants, is it really possible to operate a restaurant with social distancing and masks and? And um, all of these hygiene restrictions, it's a question everyone's asking, but I have to ask you that because personally, you must find that a, a challenge and a struggle. Yeah, I mean, I've been talking to lots of people, some of which have been sort of 
waiting to open and see what other people are doing, which is kind of what I'm doing. I'm, I'm not going to open until the end of the month. But I've been chatting to people, and I spoke to Robin Hudson uh, a couple of days ago, and he opened Limewood. And Robin said that, you know, it was almost like a normal night at Limewood, you know, in the restaurant and, you know, the hotels. And all of the pig hotels are, you know, 100% occupancy, and they haven't even opened yet. So I think people are just dying to get out there and eat and get on with life as, you know, as it was before. Yeah. Do you think we'll see a lot more casualties? What's your gut feeling? I think so. I mean, during this period, we've seen, you know, quite a few casualties, you know, restaurants that have decided not to reopen, uh, business partners like myself that have, you know, suddenly thought this is a great opportunity to sort of, you know, jack it all in and not support. Uh, but I suppose on on the back of that, there's also opportunities out there. So, yeah. And and finally, uh, your message to uh, to landlords, fundamentally, any landlords watching, what's your view? What's your message to them? My message, which I think is a bit of a common sense message in this day and age, is that, you know, they need to partner with their um, tenants and, you know, especially in restaurants. And what I've managed to do is secure a turnover rent. Uh, which means and a, you know, a bit of a rent-free period and a turnover rent, which means that, you know, the landlord, you know, benefits on the upside and, you know, everyone suffers on the downside. And I think more and more landlords, especially in London, need to adopt that policy. Yeah, share, share the pain as well as the gain. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, because rents in London, you know, are crazy. And I think, you know, more and more landlords, I think, are going to be doing that. Otherwise, it's going to be just empty premises. Mark Hicks, thank you very much for joining us. Wonderful to see you. Good luck with One Lombard Street. Good luck with the truck and the fish house. And uh, very much look forward to catching up with you, Mark. I'll see you soon in the West Country for a vino. Thank you. Jane Milton, very nice to see you. Good to see you too. First tea sommelier, not just on Biting Talk, but first tea sommelier that I've ever met or come across in my entire life. Um, am I just, am I just living a naive and closed world? There are quite a lot. There are some people certified, some people not certified. Um, I did my qualifications actually in Canada. Um, which I did online without realizing when I signed up for it that that would mean a little. 1am tutorial every week for two years which is probably why not that many people are qualified <laughs> yes yes and um i'm assuming tea sommelier is is you know this is a serious thing it's obviously it's a very com i mean tea is as complex as wine so why shouldn't there be a tea sommelier but when did you suddenly wake up one morning and say i'm actually going to devote as much time to to, to the study of tea as a master of wine might of, of wine, um, of viniculture. Was it a decision that suddenly came to you or, or have you been drinking cups of tea all your life and you suddenly thought you'd, you'd make this your, your PhD, if you like? Um, I love tea and I had been drinking it for a long time without realising that. And then what happened was I worked with food companies, helping them with strategy and getting organised and things. And uh, First of all, I was introduced to a Sri Lankan tea company and I learned quite a lot from them. And then a client bought into a tea business um, and I realised that I needed to know more and I needed to know the, the terroir, the history, the different countries and things. 
which one tea brand can't always teach you because they may only operate in, in one area. Um, and I just thought it'd be a useful thing to know more about. Um, and it has proved to be because obviously now some people are choosing not to drink as much alcohol and people are looking for different things that they can drink and, and things that they can make for them and offer them as alternatives and things. But also to use tea in cooking, tea for smoking things, tea there's so much to it and if you do food and tea matching it's exactly like doing food and wine matching and in fact I was in Sri Lanka in February attending a school of tea there and tasting amazing um, wild teas, teas where the bushes have are not no longer being looked after because of where they were because they were way up at the top of a cliff and that kind of thing and, and drinking those wild teas with a couple of, of chefs from Holland and looking at how they could use them in their menus and things was like any night that I've sat around with a, a good yeah. bottle of wine and enjoyed it. So, and, But let, I have to ask you, though, being a tea sommelier, have you become a complete pain in the, you know what, when you go around to friends and they just want to make you a cup of tea and bung some milk in do they see you coming and kind of go oh god we've got the tea sommelier we can't just put a thing of typhoon in a pot it can be quite funny normally what happens is people say make your own <laughs> nobody wants to make one for me anymore but um I, I it doesn't i mean i drink tea black i did anyway before i started all my studies it was it was how my mum drank hers it's what i liked so that's what i had done but it wouldn't I mean, I love a chai with all the spices and things yeah. in it with the milk in it. And I have no issue. I, I like people to enjoy tea. And and the tea in the, this country, the PG tips and things, are made for people to put milk and sugar in them. And actually drinking them on their own is not always as balanced an experience as you'd expect it to be. So, yeah, yeah. So... Let me ask you, Claire Blompier asked the question quickly. What is the, how do you make the perfect cuppa? Choose, choose a tea you like. Um, if you're not sure what you like, then go into a good tea shop and, and ask them to show you. Because, you know, some teas are very strong and can stand, black teas can stand up very well to milk and sugar and things. But if you're not going to drink it that way, you maybe want something different. I, one of my favorite teas at the moment, I'm just looking to see where I've got some, is uh, a black tea that has coconut, vanilla and turmeric in it. But I mean, if you're making it, the key is good water, which unfortunately in central London doesn't really mean tap water. Yeah, so you need a, you need a, water, you need a water sommelier right at the top there, yeah. Yes, absolutely. So good water, only put enough in the kettle to do what you're doing. Don't be reboiling it and reboiling it because it's not going to help it. Um, tea bag, if you're going to use a teapot, if you're going to use a mug, it really doesn't matter. But it needs, if it's black tea, it needs hot water, just boiled. If it's green tea, it's better at 80 degrees, which just means let the kettle boil, go away for a couple of minutes, come back and use it. It doesn't mean get your thermometer out and go for 80. Um, three to five minutes in the in the pot or in the cup to get it the colour you want it and then milk if you want. Doesn't matter. Yeah, very good. Now, the statistics I read out at the top of the show, an extra 111 million cups a day, um, nearly 112 in fact. Um, are, we drinking, um, are we drinking better tea or are we just buying more 
Yorkshire, more Typhoo, more PG Tips, not to disrespect any of those, but are people opening their minds and actually buying different kinds of black teas and experimenting, or are we just having more of the same? Um, I, I think I think also because of what happened, because it was so difficult to get to shops or get online orders and things, people started um, to look around for other places they could get tea. And I think because of that, they've discovered all sorts of online channels. And certainly my uh, the tea company that I work with is a Sri Lankan company. They're selling hand-picked teas. You know, they don't use machinery to pick their tea. Um, so they would have single estate salon black teas. And they have found that during lockdown, those, those straightforward teas, the black teas, the decaffeinated tea even, have salt and the Earl Grey, which are traditionally, these are the ones that people feel safe with. They think, I know what that tastes like. I know what it is. I'll go for those. And also the reason there are more cups of tea being drunk at home is because we were at home more. Just a final question. Um, I was watching um, uh, the great Greg Wallace doing one of his uh, films the other day, um, looking into food factories, and he was following the progress of uh, Thai food production. And the one thing I didn't realise was the amount of plastic that is in a tea bag. How is the in- how is the industry doing? Are there tea bags out there without plastic in them? Um, have we got as far as we want to go environmentally? How uh, how clever have the scientists been in order to? Because many of us we put the tea bag in in the compost, and if it's got plastic in it, that's the wrong thing to do. There there has been for a few years quite a lot moving on with that, and certainly um, PG Tips have just announced now that they have no plastic at all in their chain which means even the outer covering on the outside of a box that keeps it fresh till you open it is non-plastic now most people have taken it out of their tea bags that was an easy thing if you're a very small producer then you're possibly still using up stock and things people have had to look at you know individual teas that you get in little envelopes that you might find if you were offering somebody the chance to make a cup of tea so that they're not coming in, you know, like in hotels and things so that not everybody's touching your tea bag before you get it. Those little sleeves and things, it was a lot that it had to be taken out of. I think the industry's been good. There are a lot of sachets that you have always been able to buy that had either a little staple at the top of them or a little bit of bamboo that you're, that, that didn't have plastic in them. It was just some that did, but certainly they've stripped it away. They've done, they're doing a very good job. It's in their interest because most of the tea growing countries are in the places where we were sending all our plastics to dispose of them. So I think they've possibly been more aware of it than, than we were. And it's, it's a question of price. Sometimes you have to pay more for things, but if yeah, people exactly. are engaged and interested in it, they will. Jane, we must leave it there. We could, we could speak forever. Thank you so much. Please come back again and let's talk about it and advise the punters out there what teas to, to drink. Um, we need to answer that question. Maybe you could um, you can be found about why the re- why repeated boiled water is is a hindrance. When, I'm not going to ask that question now because we've run out of time. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Jane. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us on Biting Talk. It's time to talk about bread with the man who knows more than anyone, Richard Bertonet. Welcome to Biting Talk. Hello. So nice to see you. Nice to see you too, William. Now, let me just ask you quickly, is your cookery school up and running yet? What's happening down there in Bath? <laughs> uh, well, today, I've been filming today, so it was a bit of an uh, interesting um, 
first first day in the, the kitchen. So yeah, we repainted. We just uh, got all the signage up. We got everything ready. Uh, two more. We got a training day for uh, all um, all the staff you know, in the kitchen. And Thursday is our first class. So it's going to be a bit different, but we're very excited to be able to reopen. It's very exciting because you know, as a as someone who became a teacher. Um, it must be very hard for you not to be, you know, I've, you know, in this, in the past few weeks, the conversations we've had with chefs and restaurateurs on Biting Talk is, of course, this extraordinary moment where you're dragged out of the kitchen. For you, every day you, you connect, you look in the eyes of your pupils, you show them how to boss their dough. That must be so hard, you know, that lack of, of, of human communication, not meeting strangers every day of your life. That must have been difficult. Yeah, I mean, the cooking school has become my, my, my restaurant. It's become a little temple of uh, meeting, greeting people. It's a, it's a mixture of, uh, of uh, um, all sorts of emotion. Uh, and when you teach people, you meet, you meet, you meet strangers in the morning and they all become friends when they leave. So it's, it, it's been hard because um, a lot of people book for many, many years uh, before they come and have to cancel or, or, or put back uh, for later. So there's um, the... Um, anticipation of uh, of coming the excitement and then everything stopped in one day so it was a bit of a shock of course but like for everybody it's not just us i mean everybody uh a problem so we must look forward now we must look to the future and uh, the team's been working so hard to get everything back into uh, even kill so yeah. it'll be a bit different of course it's going to not going to be the same but i think every, everything's changing but we're just very excited to be able to to get our first customers back and be able to Share my passion and 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 and, and yeah, show those bus to two people like that yeah. and get back get back into it and slap some door around. Yeah. But the, the good thing about lockdown has been the social media. It's been incredible. Yes, because you've been very active on Instagram and uh, so on, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, we, uh, every day I probably get hundred queries from people okay. making bread at home and and being excited about baking or discovering baking for the first time. You know, being locked down. And I remember at the beginning, there was no flour, no yeast. So I used to get phone call from Frank, can you give me some flour? I was like a drug dealer with yeast and, and flour, which was very funny. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there'll be some good out of it, uh, but it, it'll take a while to come out. But there've been so many people baking. The interest in baking yes. has been incredible. Because I want to ask you about this, because I'm interested, because of course, you know, the UK and many people around the world stuck at home. There's been this sourdough obsession. People have been making sourdough and making banana bread. Um, has this driven you mad? Because do you feel people haven't actually been making sourdough? I mean, as you as someone who teaches it, when you look and you answer questions, has it irritated you or has there been some genuine proper uh, sourdough activity out there that's gladdened your heart? There's... The problem with, uh, with sourdough is become fashionable. So everybody wants to make sourdough before they can make the basic. Uh, so I'm, I'm a bit, uh, when I teach people, I, I teach them to under, handle dough first. Understand what's going on with flour and water. Don't worry about sourdough. People, people get confused with sourdough. They get confused about their starter, their famine. The, all those words that's, you know, the new ones, otolies. Everybody use the word otolies for, and probably don't understand what you mean really. So it's, it's been a bit crazy. But I think it's, it's to go back to the foundation, do the basic the basic right, and then build your foundation from that. And then every day, learn to understand our dough feel, our, our dough work. And then sourdough will come naturally. Sourdough is, is a slow dough. The, the, the true, the, the actual definition of sourdough, this is 
just take us through that because one one thinks that it is about natural yeasts not using stuff out of a packet it's about getting the yeast from the air and and, and as you say the, the you know the slowness the speed of it is that right yeah it is but it's basically if it's a mortar and flour mixed together and if you leave it it will decay so before you decay you ref, you refresh it and it's to it's, it's to to keep it alive all the time so it, it's it's so simple it's complicated, if you know what I mean. Mastering yeah. fermentation is an art. And it's an art we used to, uh, in France, uh, Italy, charcuterie, beer making, wine making, sourdough, they all have the same properties. Using what's around us, it's using nature to ferment things. So bread's the same. Natural fermentation for sourdough is the same. It's natural yeast. Yeah. And you just got to master. So uh, when I teach people, I always say, to you, the fridge is your best, best friend because your fridge, when you understand the temperature of your fridge, it's the same temperature always for the year. So when you understand to slow down your fermentation into your fridge, then life will become much easier. Uh, it's one of the things people don't know when my dough is ready, resting, proving. We may stick you all the, all the word. It's like a, all this expression we try to, to understand. Actually, sorry, it's my dog's barking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it's your dog, not mine. Listen, let me take you back a bit because I'm interested. You haven't been a baker all of your life. You were a, you were a chef in London. Your wife was a lawyer. You suddenly decided to to you know make this extraordinary change. You looked around. You came down to Bath. I suppose it must have been the rugby. Maybe you wanted to live in a lovely old, you know, is it Georgian? A lovely building. Um, tell me about that moment where you decided that that you and your wife were just you know, go on a completely different avenue? Well, I, I guess I, I've been a baker all my life. And when I came to England, I couldn't find a job as a baker. And uh, uh, it was it was crazy. I, I remember when I first, my first party I went to, a uh, very posh party, and that guy came to me in the bow tie and said, oh, oh, hello, what are you doing for a living? I said, I'm a baker. And he said to me, oh, what bank are you working with? I said, no, I'm a baker, I make bread. And he walked away. He couldn't understand bread. That was back in '88. Now, if you go to a party and you say you're a baker, people talk to you. They understand, right? They ask questions. It's fascinating. So it's changed a lot the past 35 years in this country, which is great. Um, so I couldn't find a job as a baker. I went to work with Robbie Hudson when he was a manager at, uh, at um, the Trudeau Glen Hotel. And that's how I started working with, in, a, in a kitchen. I had a, the chef at the time was Pierre Cheviard, which is an amazing chef. I learned a lot from there. And I moved on from there into the, the restaurant side of things. And, uh, but bread was always in my blood, always, always there. So I went back to baking in the very early 90s, work as a consultant. And I started teaching by pure chance in Divertimenti in London. And uh, I really enjoyed teaching. I never knew I could teach. Yeah, and you realised you, you, you had a knack for it and you, and you could communicate. The, I suppose is one of the tough things, is there a relentless repetition of what you do because every day you're teaching people how to do the same thing? Does it ever drive you mad or are you constantly energised by new faces and by seeing people learning and seeing the emotional changes that happen to people? I see that's, what, that's my fuel. That's what I love doing is, is see the, the, um, the, the anticipation of people when they come to the school, the expectation of people because they all keep coming back and come from all, every corner of the world now. We, we're very lucky we attract people from all over the world. So they come to Bath, the, the anticipation of them is to, they heard from us, so they, 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 
the expectation is really high already. And my, my aim after that is when they leave, it's even better, even higher. So it's teaching everything I learned all the time. I'm white. When I finish teaching, I'm always very, very tired because I will give 100% all the time to them. I want them to succeed. I want them... I had an email again yesterday from somebody who came 10 years ago and set up a bakery. And for me, that's, what's, that's what I love, is to give them that spark in their head. Yes. If they want to change job, if they want to change career or, or make bread at home for their family... And they, and they, they, the fear of the door has come off, and then they, they get on with it. That's what I love doing. I love, I never get bored of it. Never get bored. And like I said, they all come as students and they leave as friends. So. Do you do you ever get a few time wasters? I'm just imagining the idea of a sort of, you know, a kid of rich parents, and they're trying to think of something to give him or her to do, and they send them down to the bakery. Does that happen? Can you spot? Can you spot the? Uh, the fraudsters, the people who, who whose parents are just basically using you or, you know, to, to, to keep them occupied. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, you're you used to people, you know. It's, uh, um, in our trade, I like honesty. So if you if you come and learn from me, tell me, and I will teach you everything I can. You know, you, you um, with social media, I'll give as much as I can away to people. So I never hide anything. But you can't buy experience. You can't buy. You can't buy me. So, and I'm interested. You 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 use that word spies. So, there the there we are. This fashionable thing that this sourdough uh, masterclass that you give, and there must be people who want to set up their own bakery schools. You can spot them, can you? Right at the start, can you see them when they're standing in front of you? Yeah, I had one or two which I, I played around a bit, but you know, it's a, it's a, that's life, you know. Um, all everything I do is in my books, you know. I've got uh, six books out. I don't hide anything. It's all in there. But you can't, you can read books, you can learn, but you can't beat coming and actually immerse yourself for a day with me or five days with us. You know, it's the experience of that. It's uh, it's uh, took for itself. These lucky punters who will be the first out, the first in rather and the first out of your door um were they already booked in or have you had to redo the schedules and uh <laughs> no they booked in and we, we're so grateful with all our customers they're all so understanding they've been so good and say when you reopen we so we push back all our classes and uh so we, we we're nearly fully booked now for until november i mean november december is crazy and we can't put enough classes on so it's been good and the customers are, have been amazing um uh the bar has been amazing, the, the, the city, and all our customers have been so loyal and, you know, uh, nobody's cancelled. Um, so we, we cross fingers, we we be able to, to go back and get back into the floor. For those who, for those who can't, can't get up the, the queue, they can't book a, a place at your class, um, I, I, of course, we can recommend Crumb. Um, oh, my latest book, yeah. Your latest book, that's a good one. And obviously... You know, you're always on Instagram making dough, and uh, I'm sure they can find and find you on YouTube because, as you say, you're you're quite happy for have to have people to steal your ideas as long as you know if they do it faithfully. Because the you know the more the better dough that's being made, it's we surely live in a better world if people are actually focusing on this the intrinsic uh, quality of making bread. I think it's very good for the human spirit, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, and uh, I, I, I really believe that knowledge is there to be shared. So I, I don't mind sharing. And if, you know, when you're honest, you share your knowledge and you, you always know where you come from. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's the same as, as cooking and everything else. You know, it's flour and water. There's so many things you can do with it. Uh, and it, if it helps you, then it's great. Use my recipes by all means and everything else. But, you know, it's a, 
I, I really don't mind. Life is too short to be worried about this. So, uh, and and if you ever go on holiday, do you feel you have to make bread? I mean, no. <laughs> you you you're quite happy to 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 really walk away from it. I'll be in France next week, hopefully. Uh, no, this Friday, hopefully. I should be in France. And uh, my best joy is going in the morning, go and see my friend Thierry, the baker, and have a chat and a coffee with him, uh, get my baguettes, go back home, and go back in the, in the afternoon, have another chat and a beer with him. It's a pleasure of being in France. It's, uh, I don't have to bake over there. I just buy yeah. my bread for my, for my friends. And um, it, it's remind me why I love, I love that, France. Uh, about, you know, going to the bakery in the morning, uh, with the kids, it's uh, I love the smell. I love the the footprint outside of the bakery of flour. You know, it's uh, it's magical. Gosh, and and um, if only we had that that kind of culture here, you know. But um, well, it used to be there. It's coming back, you know. Yes, and and your pupils, of course, your pupils can be uh, energized and enthused to open little independent bakeries. So let's hope that happens. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Richard Burton, it's been a joy to speak to you and see you. Thank you so much. Best of luck with the reopening and have a very nice, have a, have a bon vacances. Why don't you? Bye. Bye-bye. Well, there we have it. The inspiring Richard Bertinet. Um, how exciting to be one of those people who's managed to get a place back on his cookery course. And um, that's something I dream of. I would love to try and boss the dough down there with Bertinet in Bath. Now... The show is nearly done, but not quite. We have one more hurdle before we reach the finishing line. It's time to hook up with Farhad Haydari. Uh, Farhad, today, he's really rattling our cage. He's doing a Bloody Mary with a twist. This is a two-minute recipe. Farhad, welcome to Biting Talk. The floor is yours. Thanks, William. And yes, here it is. My take, indeed, the House of Haydari's take on the iconic and old brunch favourite, the Bloody Mary. It starts with good quality premium vodka. We're going to go with beluga vodka, which is delicious and tremendous. 45 milliliters of that goes into a glass stirrer to be joined by tomato juice. The key here is that it's not from concentrate. 67 milliliters of that or V8 vegetable juice or Tom's or some such. And we add to this 10 milliliters of freshly squeezed lemon juice. Rind is of course an option, which I'm skipping as is sherry, which I'm also skipping. I don't like it uh, with the sherry concoction added in. Instead, I'd like to add some sugar syrup, seven milliliters of that. In addition, two pinches of celery salt, three grinds of black pepper, and then, aha, eight drops of Tabasco or other hot sauce, and another four dashes of Worcestershire sauce. Et voila! You stir that and pour it into a chilled highball crystal glass, Garnish with celery and get busy with a brilliant, brilliant Bloody Mary. Farhad Haydari there with a controversial Bloody Mary. No horseradish, no sherry. I wonder how you make your Bloody Mary. That is all we have time for on this edition of Biting Talk. My thanks to my guests, to Mark Hicks, to Jane Milton and to Richard Bertinet. Join me the next time we enjoy fantastic chat about food and drink on Biting Talk. (laughs) 